This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. What's up, Chicago? I'm Erin Allen, and this is The Rundown. Do you ever come across something unintentionally and realize it was exactly what you needed? I came across this book, and as soon as I saw the title, I was like, wow, my heart has been wanting this. It's called Unlearning Shame. I always write the book that I need to read. And so I knew that I was feeling really, really powerless. And I was trying to figure out how do I make a difference in the world when it feels like nothing that I do can matter. This is Devin Price. He's a social psychologist, author, and professor at Loyola University. He's written two books before this one, Laziness Does Not Exist and Unmasking Autism. And he realized that shame was this through line of his previous work. So he decided that would be the next thing he wrote about. I wanted to really talk about the shame that I think anybody who's marginalized feels right now, but really also anybody under capitalism feels, and how powerless we all feel coping with so many global crises and injustices. Okay, I know this sounds heavy, but thankfully Devin spends the whole second half of the book on the unlearning part of all of this how to heal and reframe the situations, people, and systems that are responsible for the shame that we feel. And it helped me reframe a lot of my own thoughts about those adjacent emotions too, like regret and guilt. So Devin and I spent a lot of our conversation on healing. We're going to get there, but first we're going to set the stage. Devin and I started by talking about the differences between personal shame and what he calls systemic shame. Personal shame, I think, has always been with us. I think it's a very basic human emotion. And it is the the pain of feeling like you have done something wrong, something that crosses your own moral standards, or that other people are going to view you in a negative light for. Mm. And so some degree of experiencing shame, I think, is just a natural experience of life, even though it is really, really unpleasant. And when people are ashamed, we tend to withdraw from other people, feel hopeless and unempowered, have trouble focusing. Yes. It, it physiologically is a lot like de- a mini depression, feeling ashamed, mm. right? So that's, that's something that's always been with us as human beings. But systemic shame is something that I really see as a political force that involves offloading the blame for systemic problems, whether it's climate change, whether it's systemic racism, so many other issues in the world, and telling the individuals most affected by it, this is your fault. You as an individual person have to fix this. And Only you're not you doing can enough prevent to fix it. Forest fires. <laughs> Right, exactly. Only you can prevent forest fires. You have to make the right decisions all the time. And, uh, you know, you were jaywalking. That's why you got hit by that car. (laughs) Right. It's not because like the cities weren't built in a pedestrian friendly way anymore. It's because you crossed the street in the wrong place. Um, And and even um, on a more recent example, you as an individual are to blame if you get COVID. It's not the government that failed you by not giving you time off and masks 
and and you know vaccines and things like that. It's your fault for not perfectly containing yourself. Yeah. I mean, you share so much of your own personal stories in the book. And I, I guess I just wonder, how do you think you arrived at that big question? You know, I think it's not intuitive to think big in that way when it comes to like infrastructure around mass illness, right? Or um, like you're saying, you know, big business causing these these big climate change problems. I think for me, what made it click was I started to notice how whenever there was a really powerful social movement that was really demanding an almost revolutionary amount of change, how it seemed like there were these messages coming at us that were trying to persuade us away from seeing it in that revolutionary way and focus only on tiny personal acts and personal blame. So for example, um, in 2020, uh, when racial justice was becoming more and more of a conversation. Obviously, it had been for a long time, but it was the conversation in the summer of 2020. Things like the the Instagram blackout square, if you remember that whole situation where yes. the, there were people in the streets collectively together saying, we need to end police violence. We need to end the police. But at the same time, there was this force online that was saying, you as an individual need to show your solidarity by posting this blackout square on your Instagram grid and tagging it Black Lives Matter. And we actually now know that that was not good for organizing, right? That like flooded the feed with just a bunch of blank squares instead of useful information for yeah. organizing, right? Yeah, wow. So... I think there's something kind of insidious going on there. And I think that happens with climate change when we tell people to watch their carbon footprint instead of saying, okay, let's take down Amazon together, right? Yeah. Um, over and over again, we get these messages about here's something that you can do to present yourself as an ally, as an anti-racist, as caring about the climate, as being COVID conscientious. And it's here's the thing you need to personally do and buy and wear and read and and brand yourself instead of... How are we going to actually get the power together to really make these things happen? Yeah. Um, and and so that was when I really just felt like I needed to talk about it because I was sure there were other people that were getting frustrated by that too. Mm -hmm. Because I think we do really deeply care about all of these issues and we want we need to think about how to do it in a more tactical way. You're getting into how this concept of this concept of systemic shame becomes extremely political. Um so many stories of how this happens. Can you talk about it in the context of transphobia? Sure. So this one is is the most personal for me um, because uh, in 2020, I started, uh, I had been on hormones and I'd been trans, out as trans and living a trans life for several years. But in 2020, I stopped hormones and I, I detransitioned for about nine months. Wow. And yeah, it was it was a really kind of tough bleak time in my life, mm. uh, in a very bleak time in the world. And 2020 was also the first year ever in the U.S. that um, laws restricting access to transgender health care had ever been proposed in any any state legislature. And those two things were not a coincidence, right? There's this huge backlash that has now happened against trans rights with more and more laws restricting access to transition every single year. And a lot of that legislation is focused on this fear of transition regret, right? This idea that we can't let somebody transition too young 
We can't let somebody transition if they're not absolutely sure, because the worst thing in the world that could possibly happen is for someone to experiment with their identity and their body and then regret it. And the weird paradox about those laws is it creates more people actually detransitioning, right? Like I detransitioned because I was getting that message that the worst thing you can possibly do is transition and be wrong mm. about it. And it's not true. It's not It's not the worst thing in the world to experiment with your body autonomy and see what works for you and for your body to change. All of our bodies are going to change. That's That is life. I'm so grateful that after explaining and pointing out and pointing to all of the ways that shame really rocks our worlds, um, you offer some ways to think differently about about how we exist and and some alternatives to this. Um, and you spend the whole second half of the book doing that. So thank you, <laughs> Devin. Um, Tell me about expansive recognition. How did you come to this concept? So I wanted to think to myself about what is the opposite of systemic shame? What's the opposite of feeling like the whole burden of the universe is resting on your shoulders and you're never good enough and you're to blame as a person for all of the injustices happening around you? And so where I first started was thinking about, okay, what is the alternative to shame? And shame is all about being hidden, right? It is to cover oneself, to hide away. When people are ashamed, they kind of curl up on themselves mm -hmm. or like physically retreat. So to not be ashamed is to be recognized, to actually be seen, but not in a way that makes you more vulnerable, but in a way that really takes into account your full humanity, right? If somebody recognizes you, they respect your struggle, they see all of the good and bad and complicated sides of you and can accept all of that. And they see you in the context that you're in because you're not just a person, you are a member of a community and a culture and that affects who you are. And, and that's where we get to the expansive piece. Mm. Systemic shame takes a big social force and it says it's your fault as an individual. And expansive recognition is kind of the flip of that. It's saying you are just one tiny droplet in this huge ocean of humanity. Everything you do is interconnected to other people. Mm. And that means that nothing is ever solely your fault. There are always reasons why you're behaving the way you're behaving and feel the way you feel. And also, every little effort that you make is part of something larger. Even if there's a limit to how much work you can do as an individual, you never have to actually do it alone. We're always part of, or potentially part of, a larger community and movement that can actually make a difference in addressing a lot of these things. Uh, that makes me just like want to take a deep breath and relax, you know? <laughs> um, you know, it's not all my fault and it's not all my responsibility. And like, there, there are other people in this with me. Um, you have some great charts in the book one of them is where you list some values of systemic shame and then some alternative values under expansive recognition. And I want to talk about vulnerability and radical self-acceptance. Um, how would you say that those two concepts work hand in hand when it comes to unlearning shame? Yeah. So shame is all about isolation and all about trying to make yourself somehow into a person other than who you are. 
right? So there's a lot of resisting reality, resisting hard realities built mm. up in shame. I shouldn't desire the things that I desire. I shouldn't look the way I look. I shouldn't have these past uh, coping mechanisms or addictions that I have. There's this this resistance against reality um, because there's certain realities of yourself that are just, that seem totally unacceptable, yes. right? Um, and then there's also a desire to hide all of those things away. Like these things about me can't be true. They're unacceptable. So I need to hide away. Mm -hmm. And so, so self-acceptance and vulnerability are kind of the opposite sides to that of um, when it comes to um, self-acceptance, really just allowing the things about yourself that you're uncomfortable with to just exist, right? This is where I'm at. This is who I am. And I can actually live with that and just observe it and allow it to happen without assigning a value judgment to it. Mm. It just is what it is. Mm -hmm. And then that means I don't have to hide it away so much anymore. That means there are other people that have felt things they're not proud of, that have gone through experiences that are very stigmatized. And so you can actually be vulnerable with them mm. because no healing happens in isolation. You know? Yeah. One hard truth to accept is that we have people in our lives who seem to actively perpetuate the systems that cause us so much shame. And you talk about having compassion for those people in the book. Um, I wonder if you can talk about that. Yeah, I'll talk about it with a personal example. So almost everyone in my family is conservative. Um, very, you know, just consistently voting for Republicans all my life. And as a queer person, that's hard um, to witness, to come home when you're a, a teenager who's in the closet and hearing, you know, at the time, Bill O'Reilly on the television and your mom listening to him saying super homophobic things and those kinds of things. Yeah. And for a long time, I really held my family personally responsible anytime, you know, Donald Trump did something transphobic or homophobic or mm. any lawmaker, you know, state level passed some transphobic legislation. I saw my family members as a symbol of everything that was wrong in the world. Mm -hmm. I felt like this was your fault by supporting these people. You've done this to me. And that was not productive for our relationships or for them getting it. Um, and, and I want to do be clear because I think there are levels to this. My relatives, when I talk about them, these are not people who were cruel to me or to anyone else. These are people who would say that they support queer people. They just don't see the connection between their politics and how it affects people. Yes. So they are not someone who is a immediate danger, right, to any queer people around them. Absolutely not that. And I think that would change the situation if they were, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So since they were not dangerous, cruel people in terms of their actual actions in their life, I had to reach a point where I could see them as victims too, people who had just received these messages over and over again that had convinced them to vote in ways that not only harm me, but also frankly harm them. You know, they were not voting in their own economic self-interest either by supporting these people. They had been so misled about how the world worked that it was threatening their relationships and and had put them in a really isolated and difficult place too. Mm -hmm. And that made it easier for me to feel some compassion and to also feel less rejected and attacked by them. Because when I really zoomed out, I, I really could see that we were all, my family and I, trapped in a political system where none of us were really actually represented. Yeah. And with that, I've been able to talk to, especially my mom, about how, about how her choices made me feel 
but not from a position of of shaming her and and screaming at her, which is what I used to do when I was in that <laughs> that state before, and actually seeing each other as as people again instead of symbols. Mm. And that's been really healing. Mm-hmm. That's really powerful seeing seeing them as people and not and not positions. Yeah. Um. The final chapter of the book is called Hope for Humanity. And I want to hear about some of the things that are giving you hope right now. Um, yeah, it could be examples from the book or just from your personal life otherwise. The thing that gives me the most hope is seeing human beings change. I think a lot of systemic shame is about this idea that people are innately bad or good and that you have to be perfect all the time. And that's just not the reality that I've lived. Some of the most beautiful things that I've seen in recent months have been, just for example, people getting a lot more educated about Palestine and feeling a little bit more comfortable talking about that as a an issue of injustice and, and settler colonialism, when for a long time, a lot of people in the US, it was not something that was on their radar. It wasn't something they felt comfortable talking about. It wasn't something that they knew much history about. And in the midst of devastation, we still do see people changing and people being willing to take more of a stand and to and to grapple with really hard realities. Um, I have um, I'm I'm a big abolitionist, but I have a couple of um, a couple of police officers in some of my classes right now, and I feel so much hope hearing them talk about recidivism and um, and racism in the police force and how much they they are horrified by those things too. And they do want to do something about it. Um, whether it's in that capacity still as a law enforcement officer or not, mm-hmm. you know, there are so many people I think right now who are asking themselves, what am I comfortable being complicit in? What do we need to change about the way the world works so that it isn't just business as usual while horrific things are happening. And that gives me a lot of hope. Um, I think a lot of people feel really hopeless right now, about a lot of different things. Yeah. And I think it, that, that's fine too. I think it's okay to sit in that and, and grieve that. I think we have to have space for that sometimes. But in the wake of that, I see more and more people who are really just saying something needs to change. We can't just go to work every day and act like things aren't happening that are unacceptable. Yeah. And so I think there is really a lot of great potential in that for us to come together and, and change the world in a more dramatic way. And I, I hope we get there. Me too. Devin Price is a social psychologist, author, and professor at Loyola University. Devin, thank you so much. Erin, thanks so much for this conversation. It was great. Devin's new book, Unlearning Shame, is out now. You can pick it up at a bookstore or your local library. And if you're more of an audiobook type, Devin voiced the audiobook, so you can look for that in your audio apps as well. And that's it for today. Thank you, Justin Bull and Sarah Stark for producing The Rundown and Ariel Van Klee for editing the show. Brendan Banizak is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Louis Weeks. The Rundown is produced by WBEZ Chicago and is a part of the NPR Network. What do you want to hear about on the show? Let us know by emailing us with your thoughts, questions. You can email therundownpod at wbez.org. I'm Erin Allen. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.